If it falls to me to start a fight to cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism in our country with the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of British fair play, so be it. I am ready for the fight. The fight against falsehood and those who peddle it. My fight begins today. So said Jonathan Aitken, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, a member of the Conservative Cabinet, tip for the highest office on April the 10th, 1995, as he announced that he was suing the Guardian newspaper for libel. On the 8th of June, 1999, Jonathan Aitken was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment at the Old Bailey, having pleaded guilty to charges of perjury and attempting to pervert the course of justice. As well as a prison sentence, a glittering career lay in ruins. He was bankrupted. The headline in The Guardian crowed triumphantly. He lied and lied and lied. A more balanced view is expressed by the BBC's Joshua Rosenberg. He said, what started as a little lie snowballed into a criminal lie. And this story is a sad but clear illustration of what it means to break the ninth of the Ten Commandments. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. Exodus 20, verse 16. Uh, the literal translation from the Hebrew is, you shall not answer your neighbour as a lying witness. And the narrow scope of the commandment is to some kind of legal process in court. This was especially important in a society where you were guilty until proved innocent and where justice might be abused by the rich and powerful against the poor and the weak. However, the Ninth Commandment has a much broader application as our former pastor Derek Prime puts it in, in his book Bible Answers. He says, The Ninth Commandment forbids in principle all untruth and falsehood and in particular perjury and proclaims the necessity of truthfulness of speech. And by that definition, how many of us here this evening could claim to have always and only spoken the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And what might result if we did? A review of the 1997 film Liar Liar describes it as follows a comedy which centres around handsome dad Fletcher Reed, played by Jim Carrey. When his five-year-old son's teacher asks him what his dad does for a living, little Max replies, he is a liar. He wears a suit, goes into the courtroom and talks to the judge. The teacher says what Max means is that his dad is a lawyer. But Max knows what he means. His dad promises to take him to play baseball, but he doesn't show. He promises to pick him up from school, but he doesn't come. He even fails to turn up at Max's birthday party. That makes him a liar. So when he blows out the candles on his birthday cake, Max makes a big wish. He wishes that his dad would not be able to tell a lie for just one day. 
and the wish comes true, much to Fletcher's horror. That's because next day he has a big court case which he has to win if he's to get promotion to his law firm, in his law firm. Unfortunately, his whole case is a tissue of lies from start to finish and today Fletcher cannot tell a lie. He has become that rare creature, an honest lawyer. This is American law, I hesitate to say. Sometimes, the truth or the lie is obscured by words and what is now called spin. So, to take a recent example and to be even-handed, which shows that this issue is not restricted to one political party, it was reported in the press last month, squirming defence minister Adam Ingram last night refused to apologise for misleading MPs over Iraq torture reports. To shouts of disgrace in the Commons, the Armed Forces Minister said he had not lied by claiming he had never received adverse reports about prisoner abuse from human rights groups. The government has since been forced to admit that they had received letters and documents from both the International Red Cross and Amnesty International. But in a, a bizarre defence, Mr Ingram said that these were not proper reports because of the way they were put together. Reports has a, has, has a specific meaning to me, he told the Commons. It's something that's properly researched, properly constructed and properly presented. He insisted he had always been correct and honest. Mr Ingram added, the central charge is that I received reports about abuse in detention and did nothing about it. That does not simply stack up. Opposition MPs dismissed Mr Ingram's attempts to hang on to his job as ridiculous. However, we should not be too hasty, I think, in passing judgment on or making jokes about politicians and lawyers for how many of us have done something similar. Of course, we don't like to admit that we are liars. So we talk about being economical with the truth. Or we put our untruth in a little box marked white lies. Strangely, I've never heard of any other colour for lies. The reality is, however, that truth is being eroded by lies as surely as teeth are eroded by sugar. Hence the unoriginal title I've chosen today as we look together at the Ninth Commandment Addressing Truth Decay. And I apologise for the title. Exodus 20, verse 16. However, I've chosen it for a reason. Not just to try and address the problem, but to look about how we can deal with it. And I want to try and put it in its broadest context by looking at three related themes with three particular passages of Scripture, one of which we've already read together. The first I would describe as truth and lies. The fact that you can be found guilty of perjury, of giving false evidence in court under oath, assumes, does it not, that such categories as what is true and what is false actually exist, objectively. Jonathan Aitken claimed that the bill for his stay at the Ritz Hotel in Paris was paid for by his wife. Evidence was produced to show that she was actually in Switzerland when the bill was paid. So what he said was proved to be false and he was found guilty. 
However, that may seem obvious to us, but we need to be aware that today, as never before, the existence of absolute truth is increasingly being challenged. I read an amusing story a couple of years ago about a university student who had an argument with his tutor about the mark he got for a particular paper that he took. His argument was, his tutor gave him a fail, he thought he had passed. And he said, look, it's just a matter of opinion. He thinks he's right and I think I'm right. What made the story even more amazing was that the subject was math. Now, while few of us would dispute that 2 plus 2 equals 4, many people are not so sure about moral categories of what is right and what is wrong. Why is lying a bad thing? I discovered on the internet that there is a contest held in November each year to award the title of the biggest liar in the world to the person deemed worthy of following in the footsteps of a famous Cumbrian publican named Will Ritson who was famed for his, another euphemism, tall stories. If what is right or wrong, good or bad, true or false, defined and decided by society, then past history would indicate that we're heading for big trouble. But the laws of our land were, and still largely are, although they're being eroded away, based on, in fact, the Ten Commandments, which were given by God. God's words, which define that what he says is right or wrong. They are defined by himself, by his own character, which is unchanging and wholly consistent. In fact, a lot of our songs have picked up on that theme, that God is faithful and true. God is the God of truth. The song we sang during the offering is, based on words given in his farewell speech by Moses to the people of Israel. He says, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. The authorised version translates a faithful God as a God of truth. The words are related closely. The ideas. The Illustrated Bible Dictionary comments, The God of the Bible is thus far removed from the capricious pagan deities. He is true. That is consistent both in his loving care for his children and in his implacable hostility against sin. In other words, when you're dealing with God, you can be absolutely sure what's right, what's wrong. And on that basis, you can be absolutely sure how he will deal with you consistently. There's a wonderful story of this in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were travelling on that journey from Egypt and slavery to the freedom of the promised land, uh, they passed through various nations. And one of them was the great nation of Moab. Uh, and their king at that time was a guy called King Balak. And he saw this mighty nation and he was terrified by them. And so he hired a prophet, a guy called Balaam. He gave him a bag of gold and he said, what I want you to do is to curse the people of Israel so that things go really badly for them. And this prophet, although he was a pagan prophet, discovered something interesting. He discovered that you cannot manipulate this God. You cannot with money or influence change his character. 
and he said these wonderful words in Numbers 23, 19. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God has promised to bless the nation of Israel. There was nothing that he could do about it. Couldn't change God's mind. As though God's favours went to the highest bidder. Now, you would think, if this is the kind of God he is, and you know just where you are with him, you know, there are some people you're never quite sure about, you know, how they're going to behave or respond to you. But with God, you can be absolutely clear. But you think, with such a God, if you're the recipient of such blessings, then this God would be worth trusting. And tragically, this was not and is not the case. And we see this from the beginning of human history, as recorded in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. If you've got your Bible there, let's keep you alert here, it's a very hot evening. If you turn to right at the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2, it's page 4. We know the story that God created everything. He made everything very good. The crown of his creation were human beings, the man and the woman. They were custodians, stewards and beneficiaries of all that he'd made. He gave them one negative law for their own good. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Tragically, the next chapter shows us how they were deceived. And notice what happens. They are taken in by a lie. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? He didn't say it at all, of course. He said he can eat of any of them except one. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, you'll surely die. This is a God who never changes his mind. He says, if you do this, this will happen. Now here is a liar who enters the scene and he says, you will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This God, you can't really trust him. He's trying to do you out of something. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The serpent persuaded them to doubt God's goodness and to disobey God's command. And the the result, as they say, is history. Fallen human history. The consequences of this were a broken relationship with God. They were excluded from his presence, driven out from the Garden of Eden and Paradise. But the other result was a broken relationship between human beings. That's why you and I don't get on well all the time. That's why nations fight wars against one another. That's why communities break down. And the first four of the Ten Commandments addresses this issue, as we've seen, of our relationship with God. Our broken relationship. The last six commandments address our broken human relationships and time and again human beings have broken God's commandments but more fundamentally we have preferred the lie to the truth and we have listened to the liar 
instead of listening to the God who is the God of truth. And so we lie to one another. And such is the level of self-deception that we refuse to recognize the problem and admit our own guilt. As Jeremiah the prophet put it, the heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure, who can understand it? Now that, that is the background to our subject, what it's all about, truth and lies, truth or lies. And that is the bad news. It would have been even worse if God had said, right, I'll withdraw from the scene and leave you to the consequences of what you've done. You've rejected me, you've rejected my truth, you prefer to live a lie, get on with it. But God continued to reveal himself in creation to humankind and in his word through his people Israel as the God of truth. They were meant to model what it's like to trust a reliable God instead of one of these deities that you couldn't rely on at all that all the other nations worshipped. Sadly, again and again, they rejected his truth and went their own way. And again and again, God forgave them and stuck with them. But God had a better plan in place, one that began even when our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, verse 15 was the promise that was made. And that plan came to fulfilment in the coming to earth of Jesus, the Son of God. And so we turn to a second theme, from truth and lies to truth and liberty. What is God like? What well, he revealed himself in his word in the, what we call our Old Testament to his people Israel. But the character of God described there is made real and visible in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, writes Paul in Colossians 1, verse 15. The opening book of Hebrews describes him as the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So everything that God claims to be is seen in perfection in Jesus. So if God is a God of truth, you'd expect his son to be a God, the son of God, who is truth. The Apostle John writes of those who met him and saw him and lived with him all those years. He says the word became flesh, this word that's been revealed in the Old Testament, the word became flesh made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory. Thought about that this morning with Richard, the story of the transfiguration. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. What's he like? He's full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. In perfect balance, Jesus reveals God's grace, his undeserved love to us, but also his truth in all its fullness. So John says in John 1, 9, he is the true light that has come into the world. John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. The true, the living way to God. Nobody comes to God except through me. And the litmus test, therefore, for those who meet him, as back in history is, when you see Jesus face to face, those who met him, do they believe him? Do they believe that he is the truth? Or do they reject him as a liar and a pretender? There are only these two responses to Jesus. And nowhere is that more clearly seen in the passage that we read together in John chapter 8. The response of the Jewish religious leaders to Jesus. And Jesus says, there are two alternatives here to those who hear him. You can either hold on to my teaching and believe what I say is the truth 
or you can reject my teaching. And he says the outcome is that those who hold on to my teaching will know what it is to be free, will experience liberty. While the outcome for those who reject Jesus is slavery, to continue in slavery. Now, naturally enough, the Jewish religious leaders were highly offended by this. They said, we've never been slaves of anyone. We're free. Kind of ironical, as the Romans were running the show anyway, but what they were talking about was their spiritual pedigree. We're children of Abraham. But Jesus tells them that the slavery he's talking about is slavery to sin. And he's come to set people free from the bondage of sin to give them true liberty. And suddenly, the religious leaders refuse to believe in him. Instead, he says, you're listening to your father, the devil. He's a liar. He's always been a liar. He speaks his native language. He's the father of lies. These are pretty strong words to say to religious people who were looked up to in Israel as the paragon of religious virtue. You're listening to your father, the devil. Why? because you don't believe me that I am the truth who I claim to be when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate the Roman governor he told him everyone on the side of truth believes in me John 18.37 Pilate gave his famous answer what is truth? Jesus had just told him I am the truth He failed to recognize the one who is the truth and instead tried to wash his hands of any responsibility for Jesus' death. In contrast, Jesus took the responsibility for our sin, dying in our place on the cross. Now, the question is the same question to each one of us here. What is your response to Jesus? Have I rejected the claims of Jesus? The teaching of Jesus? Have I turned away from the one who claims alone to be the truth and instead listen to the father of lies if so I am still in my sin and I will continue to sin in every way not least in telling lies to other people or am I holding on to the teaching of Jesus trusting his word recognising that he is the truth this is the great divide if you've been coming here for much, you may think, this guy speaks about the same thing every week. Yes, I do, because this is what the gospel is about. It's about your response to Jesus, who he is. One of the reasons Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit was to enable us to see, through our self-deception, to see the reality of who Jesus really is. He said, I'm going to send you someone else. And he referred to him as the Spirit of Truth, What is the main role of the Holy Spirit? It is to show who Jesus is to people so that they can see that he is the truth and respond to that truth. That's in John 16, 13 to 15. And one sure sign that this has happened, that you've responded to Jesus who is the truth, is that I'll have a changed attitude and response to God's commandments. Whereas before I chafed against them and said, I don't want to follow those ways, I want to do my own thing. You now say, I wonder what it is I can do that pleases God. What is it that I can do that will make God really happy? And he says, here's my commands, which are for your good. Do these and you will live. And you will know life and liberty and joy and freedom from the power of sin. So now we turn to a third and final theme. 
as we apply the ninth commandment in practice. Truth and life, truth and liberty, finally, truth and love. In his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul reminds them that one of the key marks of spiritual maturity is that you've become a Christian, that you've grown up as a Christian, grown into Christ. He says you should speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4, verse 15. And just as Jesus exhibited that perfect balance of love and truth, so Christians should exhibit the same balance of love and truth in how we speak, especially to one another and about one another. We should be those, if you claim to be a Christian, your goal should be to speak the truth in love. Now the difficulty is keeping these two aspects in balance together and not focusing on one at the expense of the other. There are two extremes to avoid. There are those who are always eager to speak the truth and tell people where they're going wrong. And that may be necessary, especially if they're going wrong. But unless our motive is right, then our words will be counterproductive. We'll be speaking the truth without love. But there is an opposite danger which we must also avoid, and one that I believe is far more of a problem today than speaking the truth without love. And that is speaking love without truth. You see, we live in a world where truth is relative where no one wants to say anything is wrong. And people, even Christians, tend to avoid the practice of what the New Testament calls rebuking one another. I've been around a lot of churches. There aren't many that practice rebuking one another in love. Because we kind of think, well, if we say something's wrong, we'll offend them. It's unloving to say anything critical about anybody. But I say to you, such an attitude is not a sign of love. If you have a small child who insists on trying to stick his fingers into an electrical socket, it is a sign of love to warn him against such practice. Words of love alone may not suffice. The child needs warnings of love as well. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he also chastens, he rebukes. It's a sign that you belong to the family, that you pay attention to family members who are straying from the truth, who are doing things that are wrong. You remember, when Jesus spoke to that woman of Samaria by a well, she was very interested in Jesus. Then he put his finger on her moral life. Put his finger on her immoral lifestyle. And he said to her, look, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, there is a place in which we should speak the truth in love, and that place is the Christian family. That place is the local church to which we belong. That is the context. So, if you look on in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. We are responsible for one another. Listen, I give you permission. If you think I am stepping out of line or stepping off track, let me know. And I will try and let you know in love because I'm concerned for you. In fact, if you're a member of this church, I'm more concerned for you because you've asked me to be so as your pastor. 
I have a responsibility before God to you. It's, I tell you, it's the hardest thing to do. I hate doing it. I hate doing it, but I find it very hard to go to someone and say, look, I want to say to you in love, I think what you're doing is wrong and it's damaging to your spiritual health. But if I don't, didn't do it, what kind, of, what kind of pastor would I be? What kind of parent would just let their children go on and do what they like? And if it turns out, as has happened, I have to say, that someone says to me, Pastor, I'm concerned about this, I think that's wrong. If it turns out that in fact you were wrong, and I need to explain to you what I'm doing, it may be the case, it may be the case that I, I, I need to thank you. But I need to thank you, even if you were wrong, because you cared enough to bother to ask me. And didn't say, well, it's none of my business what the pastor does. We're part of a local church. Part of a local family. We need to speak the truth in love. However, if love is not your motive, then don't speak up, shut up. You see, the tongue is the most potent weapon in the world. James describes it in his little letter. And the damage it inflicts on people. J. John in his book 10, which I've mentioned several times, writes, Our use and abuse of the tongue affects our relationships with others. Lies are not simply wrong. Lies hurt people. So, let me be practical, if that's the case. Slander is out for a Christian. Speak to someone, not about someone. Even if it's only for prayer, brother. Which is sometimes just an excuse for talking about other people. Gossip is out. You want a good definition of gossip? It is gossip if you are not part of the problem or the solution. Let me say it again. It is gossip if you are not part of the problem or the solution. Avoid flattery. As Howard Hendricks said when he visited us, flattery is like perfume. Smell it, don't swallow it. And like God, we need to be true to our word. No false promises. Do what you say you're going to do. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, people have made a big fuss of it about what you say in court, you know, when you swear by oaths and everything. But what Jesus was really saying is in his day, people said, it's fine to lie unless you happen to be under oath and then you've got to tell the truth. Jesus said, no, no, no. Let your yes be yes, your no, no. Let people know where they stand with you. Just speak the truth, yes or no. And above all, can I encourage us to think before we speak? J. John gives a helpful acrostic on the word think, which I'll pass on to you because I think it's helpful. T. Is it true? H. Will it help? I. Is it inspiring? N. Is it necessary? K. Is it kind? Think before you speak now we may not always get it right and if we get it wrong we need to apologise and keep open relationships with one another but that does not mean we can withdraw into our own private world if it's none of my business instead our goal should be to strengthen our relationships and by our words build one another up and encourage one another how encouraging a word of encouragement is, isn't it? And how destructive 
an aside, a caustic comment, can cut somebody down. So the final section in Ephesians 4 concludes, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now I tell you this, if we were to work on this in our local churches, in Charlotte Chapel, people would be attracted because they'd say, that's a community where I know where I stand, where people care for me, and where I can really trust them and be open with them, where I don't need to lie and pretend, put on an appearance, act the part. That should be our goal. Let me just say to me in conclusion. I began with the story of Jonathan Aitken's conviction and imprisonment for perjury. The title of his book explains the reason why he fell from grace. He entitled it, Pride and Perjury. His pride was his downfall, but his humbling was his salvation, for it brought him to Christ. And if you've heard Jonathan Aitken speak or listen to his testimony, it's a remarkable account of how he came to faith in Christ through the experience he passed through coming out of prison finally in training for ministry but it began for him as it must begin for all of us whether we end up in court or not that's in the sense of second vision it began when he admitted his guilt this is what he said I have learned my lesson I hope never to tell lies again sometimes you become a prisoner of your own lie ultimately I have no excuses and when you come for the first time to Christ or subsequently when you have sinned the great assurance that we have is that through Jesus we can be forgiven no matter how great our sin be it lies or whatever so let me conclude with some words which we looked at last Sunday evening at the Lord's table from the first letter written by John the Apostle of Love about confession and cleansing what he says 1 John 1, 8 to 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. May God's word find a place in our lives this evening. Let's pray together.